Let's pray and we'll get uh, get started. Father, this evening we humble ourselves before you as we ponder the significance and the weight and the glory and the agony of the cross. So, Father, I pray now, just as we um, come into your presence, in the name of Christ and through his sacrifice, we, we ask that you would help us to ponder afresh and anew exactly what it is that he did for us on that cruel cross on the first Good Friday so many years ago. Spirit, we pray that you would be uh, working in us and through us, in particular as we look at the, the cross work of Christ and we see what he's done and what you want to show us through it. Help us to see your word and your truth for us. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I think we all are familiar with what the idea of irony is. The theme for our service tonight is irony of the cross. And we'll be taking a look at three specific ironies that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. We all are somewhat familiar with what irony is. Irony, of course, is when we use words to convey a meaning that is the exact opposite of what we say. Irony can be mean-spirited or funny, but irony most often in real life and in stories is most helpful in bringing a situation into sharp focus. In other words, it helps us see what is really going on. We see irony all over the Bible, but in the Gospel of Matthew, we see irony, I think, most often. So tonight, we're, of course, celebrating Good Friday, which is ironic in and of itself, right? We call good the account of Jesus' betrayal and his beatings and his bludgeoning and his brutal binding to the cross. That is ironic. And it is Good Friday because unlike those who first lived through it, we know what Jesus was accomplishing for us that Friday. And that, of course, he would rise again on the third day. So we're going to be focusing our attention on a section of scripture that is really right at the heart of the gospel of ca- account of Jesus's crucifixion, Matthew 27 verses 27 through 42. And what we'll see is three ironies, three explicit ironies that Matthew uses to teach us something about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Three ironies. So Matthew unveils the events of Jesus's crucifixion here in this section, and he does so by highlighting three blatant ironies that, again, reveal to us what is really going on, what, what the reality of the situation of the cross really is, despite what it felt like and what it looked like on the surface. So we pick up the story in chapter 27 and verse 27. A little bit of context here before we jump in. This is immediately following Pilate's sentence of Jesus to death, so what we'll do is we'll listen to the words of Scripture, we'll watch some, some Scripture uh, portrayed in video, and then we will ponder these three profound ironies that are meant to teach us about the crucified King. So let's look together at irony number one. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 31. The first irony that we see out of the crucifixion account is that the man who was mocked as king is indeed actually the king. Verses 27 through 31. The man who was mocked as king is indeed the king. I've chosen 
a symbol for each of our ironies, and you can see the first on the screen behind me. It's the king's crown. It's a symbol for this truth tonight that we will be reflecting upon a little bit later in the service. So let's watch a portion of scripture, verses 27 through 31, as uh, the word of God is, is read in the video and acted out. And then we'll ponder these truths. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! They said... They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So here we have our first section of scripture tonight. In verse 26, we learn that Jesus was flogged, a torturous event in and of itself, which was very customary for the Romans to do before a crucifixion. But what we see portrayed in this scene, in these verses, was not common procedure at all. Here we see the mockery of Jesus. The Romans uh, soldiers strip, strip him, drape a, a garb around him as if it was his royal robe. They create, of course, a, a crown of thorns to spite him and put a pretend garment around him and put a, a scepter in his hand. They proceed to brutally attack him and to to mock him, of course, culminating in the cry, Hail, King of the Jews. See, they thought it was ridiculous that someone who claimed to be a king would end up like this. But this is where the irony of it all comes in. Friends, was Jesus the King of the Jews? Of course he was. Matthew's readers know and we know that he is the king of the Jews. In fact, from the outset of his gospel, Matthew tells us that he is the predicted Messiah in 1 verse 1. In chapter 2 verse 1, Herod looks for, quote, the one who has been born king of the Jews. And of course, in his his ministry, Jesus constantly talked about the imminent kingdom of God. And of course, he was the king of that kingdom. Immediately uh, preceding the events that we just saw, we see that he is on trial with Pilate. And Pilate asks him point blank, are you the king of the Jews? To which he replies, you have said so. So there are, there are two layers here, I think, of irony. Of course, the soldier's mockery is meant to be sarcastically ironic, right? So when they say, hail, king of the Jews, they, they really mean you are nothing but a pathetic criminal. That's what they mean. But Matthew uses their irony to draw out an even deeper irony that, the, that, that reveals to us, us the, the truth of the situation. Jesus really is the king of the Jews. And we know that he is not only just the king of the Jews, but he is king overall. He is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, the God of the universe. Just a chapter later in Matthew 28, verse 18, we see Jesus say these words, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Paul says of him that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
Dr. Carson sums this section up well. He says, He is king over the soldiers who mocked him. He is king over you and me. And one day Paul's assure, uh, Paul assures us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So friends, the man who is mocked as king is indeed the king. I'd like to read you a short a portion of a, of a poem about these verses. It begins this way. On that wretched day, the soldiers mocked him. Raucous laughter in a barracks room. Hail the king, they sneered while spitting on him. Brutal beatings on this day of gloom. Though his crown was thorns, he was born a king. Holy brilliance bathed in bleeding loss. All the soldiers blind to the stunning theme, Jesus reigning from a cursed cross. So friends, we're going to sing. Our band is going to come. And if you would stand, we're going to sing a song about Jesus being the King of Kings. So why don't you come? So we've seen the man who's mocked as the king is in reality the king of kings. And that leads us to a second irony that we see in this passage, Matthew 27, verses 32 through 40. And it reads this way, The man who is utterly powerless is powerful. The man who seems utterly powerless is the one who is all-powerful. I've chosen a stick of dynamite as the symbol for this truth tonight, the symbol of power. So let's again watch and hear the word of God, Matthew 27, 32 through 40. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. 
above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You, we're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross, if you are the Son of God. So the man who is utterly powerless, seemingly, is actually powerful. Every detail given in this particular section of Scripture screams of how weak and powerless Jesus seemed to be. It begins by the account that Jesus was too weak to even carry his own cross. And that day, the the horizontal beam was carried by the Roman victim to the place of execution. But since Jesus was too weak, they conscripted a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene to do his job. And when we see the simple phrase in verse 35, when they crucified him, we are reminded of the utter humility of it all. Because victims were crucified completely naked. See, the cross was not only a, a, a means of, of pain, but it was an utter means of shame. And so Matthew tells us then that the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothing. It's, it's hard to imagine a better portrayal of utter powerlessness than the ones that we see in verse 32 through 40. So having crucified him, they, they then sat down to keep watch over him. This was Roman policy to make sure that no crucifixion victim would escape from the cross. So, so there was Jesus without any prospect of rescue, hanging in shame, seemingly utterly powerless. And if, if that weren't enough, two criminals are there beside him, placing Jesus in infamous company. And if that were enough, next in verses 39 through 40, come the insults. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down, they said, from the cross, if you are the Son of God. Where did they get that from? They didn't just make it up. We see Jesus saying these words in John chapter 2, verse 19. He once said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, there he referred to his body, and to his death, and to his resurrection, which would be a new temple, a new place, a meeting place between, between God and man. But they thought he meant that he would literally destroy the, the temple in Jerusalem, and that he was so powerful that he could rebuild it in three days. That would be an amazing kind of power and an amazing feat. But there Jesus hangs, utterly powerless. On a Roman cross. Once again, the mockers think that they are indulging here in fine irony. In light of Jesus' apparent claim to have immense power to destroy the temple, to rebuild it, they say, save yourself. Come on down if you're the Son of God. Which, of course, is ironic. Because what do they think of him? They are convinced he's utterly helpless. And that he cannot do a thing to, to save himself. Again, Dr. 
Carson hits the nail on the head when he says of this scene, once again, there are two levels of irony. The mockers think that they are witty and funny as they mock Jesus' pretensions and laugh at his utter weakness as he has claimed he could destroy the temple and raise it in three days. But the apostles know and the readers know and God knows and we know that there is a deeper irony. It is precisely by staying on the cross in abject powerlessness that Jesus establishes himself as the new temple and comes to the resurrection in fullness of power. See, the only way that Jesus will save himself and save his people is by hanging on the wretched cross in utter powerlessness. So the words the mockers used, Dr. Carson writes, to hurl inserts and condescending sneers actually describe what is bringing about the salvation of the Lord. Friends, the man who seemingly was utterly powerless in that moment was in actuality powerful. Again, a portion of a poem here. Awful weakness mars the battered God-man, far too broken now to hoist the beam. Soldiers strip him bare and pound the nails in. Watch him hanging on the cruel tree. God's own temple down. He has been destroyed. Death's remains are laid in rock and sod. But the temple rises in God's wise ploy. Our great temple is the Son of God. So would you stand with me again, if you will, and let's sing about the power of the cross. So, the man who is mocked as king is in reality the king. The man who is seemingly utterly utterly powerless is in reality powerful. And finally, we come to verses 41 and 42. And our third irony of the night. The, the man who can't save himself saves others. The man who can't save himself is exactly the one who saved others. Let's again watch and hear the word of God. The same way the chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others. They said, But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Alongside the uh, onlookers, we see the religious leaders here portrayed. Not only did those who just happened to be going by there in Jerusalem on the outskirts, not only did they hurl inserts, but of course the uh, religious leaders couldn't let it go without adding insult to injury. And they stood and they mocked him and they say something that is really filled, chock full with irony. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. See, Jesus had saved others. Many others, in fact. You're familiar as I am with the gospel accounts. He healed the sick. He 
cast out demons. He fed the hungry and he even raised the dead. Yes, Jesus did save others. He helped many in their time of physical and emotional suffering. And now when he was the one who needed saving from their perspective, he seemingly could not save himself. Their point is clear. This would-be savior is a disappointment and a failure. If, they say, if, if he can get himself down from that cross, then, then they say, we will believe in him. Friends, ironically, ironically, he didn't come down from the cross, but he did come up from the grave. And still, these people would not believe. It's amazing. So once again, as before, the mockers speak more than they know, more than they are aware of. Matthew knows, we know, in reality, we know that if Jesus was to save others, if he was to truly save others, not just physically, but spiritually, from their sins, from death, from hell, then he could not save himself from the cross. Again, Dr. Carson's words are fitting. Suddenly, he says, the words of the mockers take a new weight of meaning. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. The deeper irony, he says, is that in a way that they did not understand, they were speaking the truth. If he had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way he could save others was precisely by not saving himself. In the irony behind the irony, Dr. Carson writes, that the mockers intended, they spoke the truth they themselves did not see. The man who can't save himself actually does save others. And it's precisely because he chose not to save himself. Again, a portion of poem. Here's the one who says he cares for others. One who says he came to save the lost. How can we believe that he saves others when he can't get off that bloody cross? Let him save himself. Let him come down now. Savage jeering at the king's disgrace. But by hanging there is precisely how Christ saves others 